On a bitter, wintry day about three years ago, I visited Bun Hills Cemetery in London. And I wasn't looking for him, but I came across the grave of the celebrated British poet and painter William Blake, who was buried there in 1827. He was buried in the midst of some of my dearest friends. There was John Owen, the Puritan theologian. There was John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress. Isaac Watts, the author of more hymns in your hymnal than anyone else, died in 1748. And very close to Daniel Defoe, the author of Robinson Crusoe, was William Blake. And I was reminded that Blake in 1827 was dying. And a friend was present with him on the day of his death. Blake was dying of liver failure. And Blake wanted to spend, he knew it would be his last day working. And so he sat up in his deathbed, finishing a painting he was doing. And his beloved wife sat on the other side of the bedside, weeping. And after finishing the painting, he was exhausted, but Blake began to very softly sing psalms and hymns. And the friend who was sitting on this side of the bed said, Mr. Blake died in a most glorious manner. He said between singing that he was going to that country he had always wished to see. He expressed that he was happy since he had a good hope for salvation through Jesus Christ. And the friend concluded just before he died, his face became bright, his eyes lit up, and he burst out singing joyful songs and then breathed his last. What a joyful exit from this world. Blake on his deathbed, bursting forth in joyful song as he drew near to the heavenly kingdom. And for Blake, the living hope described in our text in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, was incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven, and it was drawing near. This morning, I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and look at 1 Peter 1 with me. We'll be digging deep into some of those clauses that are there in Peter's famous run-on sentence that takes up verses 4 through 9. But let's seek the Lord's help now as we prepare to, to preach this word. Our Father, we ask now for the, the work of the Holy Spirit to awaken our hearts and renew our minds. We're mindful that to some our word will be the fragrance of death and to others the same word will be the fragrance of life. And so, Lord, we would ask that you would perhaps for many even give the gift of saving faith this morning, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me remind you what we've seen as we've just begun our exposition of 1 Peter 1. Look very carefully at verse 1, and you'll see who Peter is writing to. The recipients of his letter are called pilgrims. They're sojourners in this world, as is every Christian, since we are on our way to where our citizenship is in heaven. And Peter so far has named six blessings that come to every single believer. These blessings are yours if you're in Christ. The first is you are elect. Peter speaks of that in verse 2. When did this choice of God happen? It happened before the foundation of the world. Why? It's unconditional choice. You were not chosen because of any merit in you, but because of God's sovereign purpose. The second blessing Peter has named is that of the Father's mercy. Peter writes and says in verse 3 that God has shown you abundant mercy, meaning that God has withheld justice and punishment from you and instead given you kindness. That's what mercy is. Not giving you what you deserve, but giving you what you don't deserve. And then the third blessing 
Peter wants to talk about is regeneration, that he has begotten you again. He's given you new life. Regeneration is that, that act of God that is, first of all, necessary. Didn't Jesus say, unless one is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. Nothing is a substitute for regeneration. Regeneration is supernatural. The children of God who are those born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Regeneration is inward. It's what scripture speaks about when God says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. It's sovereign. The Holy Spirit regenerates whom he wills. He's like the wind who blows where it wishes. And regeneration is permanent. Once you've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, you're a new creation and can't go back to being an old one. And then the fourth blessing that Peter lists that every believer has they have a living hope. It's spoken of there in verse 3 that God has begotten us again to a living hope. Our hope comes through the resurrection. That's the centerpiece and basis for our hope because Jesus has died and risen again. And because God has promised us that we shall die and be raised again, we can have a sure hope. And then the fifth blessing you have is that inheritance. It's spoken of in verse 3 and 4. We'll speak more of that in days to come. And finally, the great blessing you can have today is the Father's secure keeping of you. We're told in verse 5 that you're being kept by the power of God. This is nothing less than the doctrine of the security of the believer. You're held in God's powerful hand and nothing or no one can pluck you out. This is why Jude will assert that God is able to keep you from stumbling. That's why Paul can state in Romans 8 that nothing can separate the believer from the love of God. That's why Paul will say in Philippians 1, He who began a good work in you will perfect it. But Peter raises a very troubling and difficult and heart-surging subject. It's in verse 7 of our text as we are proceeding through the text. Peter brings up this phrase. He wants to talk about the genuineness of your faith. And of course, you know what the opposite is of genuine faith. It's pseudo faith. Now, saving faith can't be overemphasized if we're preaching any New Testament text. The Greek word for faith, pistuo, occurs over 240 times in the New Testament. Faith is always relevant because faith is the means whereby we're saved. Without faith, we are told in Hebrews 11, it's impossible for men to please God. Christians are called repeatedly in the New Testament, for example, in Acts 2, believers. In other words, faithers, those who have and exercise saving faith. But let me remind you about the New Testament view of faith. It's a gift. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. Saving faith is egalitarian. This is something that needs to be said and said and said. There's not one way of salvation for white folks and another for black folks. There's not one way of salvation for people who live in the suburbs and another for those who live in the city. There's not one way of salvation for the educated and another for the illiterate. There's not one way of salvation for, for people who are really patriotic Americans and for foreigners. God is not a respecter of persons. He makes the free offer of salvation to anyone who places their faith in Christ alone. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And then more about faith. Saving faith must be in the proper object. I hope that you roll your eyes whenever you hear people in our culture say, I'm a person of faith. Faith in who? Faith in what? Saving faith must always be in Christ. The Jesus who was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life and died a substitutionary death and rose again. Faith in anything and anyone less than that is not saving faith. But everywhere the New Testament wants to witness to the reality of pseudo-faith, false faith, non-saving faith. Jesus teaches that there would be tares among the wheat in Matthew 13. We're told in John chapter 2 that many, huge air quotes here in the text, many believe in Christ. But Jesus doesn't commit himself to them because he knows what's in their hearts. And in the case of Judas, who undoubtedly was lost, even the other disciples, the other 11, were confident of his belief. But despite appearances, Jesus knew their hearts. John tells us in 1 John 2 that even antichrists have been received for a while into membership in churches. They were of us for a while, and then they went out. And this is why Peter wants to use the modifier. Look carefully at verse 7. He wants to remind you and the readers that there are such things as people who have false faith, not genuine faith. What are some of the differences between pseudo-faith and saving faith? Well, a couple at least. False believers want salvation, but not Christ in all his offices. They want the grace of Christ, free salvation, but not the government of Christ, his kingship and rule. Like the prodigal son who wanted his father's goods, but not his father's rule. The false believer wants to go to heaven, but not by the narrow way that leads there. They want Christ, but not without exception. They want Christ and their sins and the world also. They want to be saved from the consequences of sin, but not from sin itself. But Jesus came to save from sin. Genuine believers want Christ without exception. They want him in all his offices as prophet, priest, and king. Another distinction. False believers never want to acknowledge the inconveniences or hardship that follows a commitment to Christ. They want salvation, but they've never counted the cost. Jesus was very honest in telling men in Luke 9, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Genuine faith. Look at that word in verse 7. Genuineness. Genuine faith wants Christ and all the inconveniences that necessarily follow. It costs to be a believer. I'm not talking about the price of redemption. We are freely redeemed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, period. We're justified freely by his grace, Paul says in Romans 3. But the true believer who's been justified by grace alone through faith alone will gladly accept all the difficulties that come with that. And so Peter begins to name some of those difficulties. Look at verse 7. Peter speaks of the testing by fire. These are certainly inconveniences, hardships, difficulties that come with genuine saving faith. In verse 6, he talks about trials. And so I want you to think with me for a moment about trials and being tested by fire. Until your faith is put to the test, it remains, let's search for the right word here, theoretical. 
you never know the substance of your faith until the hard times come, until the tests come, until the trials. Then you find out when the phone rings from the oncologist's office with the bad news, when a best friend betrays you, when you walk into your boss's office and he says, we don't need your services anymore. Until then, your faith is speculative because it's untested. You can talk about strong faith, but has it yet been tested? Everything important gets tested. The water you drink, the car you drive, the food you eat, the bridge you drive over are all tested for quality. But none of these things are as, to use the language of Peter in verse 7, none of those things are as precious as saving faith. And what we're going to find as we go through Peter's epistles, one of the major themes is the proving of your faith. You see, he's writing to people who are being tested and tried by persecution. And Peter is saying to them, all of these things are just tests, trials of your faith. So notice well what it is that's tested. It is your faith. Do you have saving faith or not? Is it weak faith or strong faith? Can you trust God in every situation? Can you trust him in the darkness as well as the light? Why is it that our faith is tested? Well, it's by the instrument of faith that we're saved, justified. It's by our faith that we live. And knowing that your faith will be tested, you should be praying, as did all the apostles, Lord, strengthen our faith. What's the proving ground? The testing arena for your faith. Trials. Look at verse 6 and 7. Peter talks about various trials. And so you should expect this, that a variety of trials will come. Peter doesn't name the specific type of trial, so his admonition can serve as a general instruction for any Christian going through any trial. This could include physical ailments, economic setbacks and hardships, loss of employment, persecution because of your stand for Christ, family tensions. You can become the object of unfounded slander and gossip. And these can come in combination, a health trial with a relational trial, even to the point that you can say with the psalmist, I know what you talk about when you say, I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death. Trials, of course, look carefully at verse 6. Trials, of course, are grievous. That's the word Peter used. They bring sorrow, distress. Didn't Jesus weep when his dear friend Lazarus died? The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, God's discipline is not delightful but painful. Now look at the duration of trials. Look carefully at verse 6. Peter uses this phrase. A little while. Just a little while. That's the duration of trials. You may think the trial is dragging on, but compared to the duration and glory of the future God has planned for you, the distresses of this life are incredibly momentary and brief. Trials may be lasting, but they're not everlasting. It's important to notice that hard trials, unexpected trials, come to faithful Christians and healthy churches. The proponents of health and wealth theology that say, no, the Christian will never be touched by this, need to read their Bible. Doesn't Jesus say in John 16, in this world you'll have tribulations, but be of good cheer. 
Doesn't Paul say in Acts 14, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God? Doesn't Paul say as he's preparing for his own execution in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer? Peter will later say in 1 Peter 4, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial as though some strange thing has happened to you. Christians should not be surprised when trials come. They will come. They do come. And God will use them to test and mature his people. We tend, fully when the, we tend to sinfully when the trials come. Our first response tends to be, why is this happening to me? Lord, you need to give an account for your providence. What did I do wrong? Will it ever end? And we run to anger or despair or anger light frustration. The scriptures give repeated warnings about complaining in a time of trial. We will see that tonight, and I hope you'll join us. Your choices tonight at 6 p.m. are a football game or the Word of God. And tonight in the Word of God, we will look at Joshua's early career, and we will see the people of God complaining, the murmuring Israelites in the wilderness. The evil one will tempt you when trials come to brood and feed your frustration with resentment against others and even into, towards God and slide into the bondage of bitterness. Now, by the way, I've had some really immature, silly young believers who say, Carl, I've, I've led a charmed life. I want my faith to be tested. I want trials. Where do I go to sign up for those? And I've said, you don't have to go looking for trials. God knows your address. You can't control the timing and extent and severity of trials. And by the way, trials usually come when you think they're most inconvenient. All you can control is your attitude and reaction in the trial. Knowing how to interpret events and actions is a large part of wisdom. Your values determine the valuation of your trials. If you value comfort more than character, trials will always upset you. If you value the material more than the spiritual, you'll not be able to count it all joy. If you live only for the present and not for the future, trials will make you bitter and not better. But Job should be our role model who demonstrates the perfect outlook when he says in Job 23, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Now, I want you to dig in deeper on with me and study this issue of genuine faith. Look at verse 7, where Peter, writing about genuine faith, and he makes the assertion that genuine faith is relatively precious. How does the gold miner find out if what he's discovered is legitimate and worth anything? Well, he puts it in the furnace, and he turns up the heat, until the gold liquefies and the impurities float to the top and are scraped off, and then he's able to evaluate, do I have something legitimate and precious metal here? This is, by the way, what Jesus, the refiner, says of you. Let's put her in the furnace, and he, she, will be purified and proven. As you go through scorching trials, something Valuable, incredibly valuable emerges. Strong, mature, resolute faith. 
Look at verse 7. Where Peter writing, he says, The genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes. Gold right now is worth $2,000 an ounce. An ounce. That's why it's called a precious metal. But I want you to look at verse 7, and I want you to see the assertion, the value table that the Word of God gives us. Your trust in Christ is worth infinitely more. The world, through markets and manipulation, sets the worth of gold. But the value of faith is determined by God, not the world. And he gives it as his gift. Right now, if you could get into Fort Knox, you'd find 147 million ounces of gold. It's worth $7 trillion by today's valuation. But look at what Peter said in verse 7. I want you to understand a, a, a dynamic principle of comparative economics. Peter says in verse 7, The very smallest measure of faith, a mustard seed of faith, is worth more than the greatest quantity of gold. Because saving faith can take a man from this world to the heavenly kingdom. Gold will be left behind at your death sitting on your dresser. Saving faith can give peace to the most troubled conscience. Gold can do nothing for a troubled conscience. This word, in verse 7, Peter is writing it to people who are undergoing the beginnings of horrific persecutions under Nero. What a comfort that is to them to know, my faith in Christ is worth infinitely more than all the world's goods. Now Peter makes a, a fascinating statement, one that's very important to us in verse 8 about genuine faith. Look at verse 8. Peter says, speaks of Jesus, and he says, whom having not seen... You love, though now you do not see him, yet believing. And the assertion that Peter is making, listen carefully to me. Genuine faith does not demand to see Jesus in this life. Today, many are convinced that, that faith would be solidified if they could only see Jesus in the flesh. This view is so prevalent that whole theological traditions are built in seeking a personal, visual revelation of Jesus. The Roman Catholic Church has a long line of those claiming visitations in the flesh by Jesus. And so you have Francis of Assisi, Catherine of Siena, Julian of Norwich, Teresa of Avila. The cults are right there next to him. Joseph Smith with Mormonism and Ellen G. White in Seventh-day Adventism claimed personal encounters with Jesus as the basis for their authority. And of course you know the Pentecostal movement is rife with claims of those who state they've seen Jesus. But look at our text. What does Peter assert of his readers? He can say it without any fear of contradiction. You have not seen Christ, yet you love him. You have not seen Christ, yet you believe in him. And doesn't the writer of Hebrews say in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This teaches us the experiential pattern of believers through the centuries. They believe without seeing and they are all the more richly blessed for it. If you state, well, seeing, Carl, seeing is believing. I'm an empiricist. 
I will believe in Jesus when and if he reveals himself visually to me. Well, my friend, seeing is not believing. Many who saw Jesus in the flesh did not believe in him. This is why the New Testament is insistent and repetitive that faith comes by hearing and not by sight. I've told you the story several times. When we were in Las Vegas, there's a, a young man in my congregation who I loved dearly. He was very zealous. He was just pouring through the word, and he was a roofer. He worked on the roof, on roofs, and he had a really good job, a family business. And so one day he came by to see me. He says, Carl, dude, I've got something to show you. It's my newest evangelistic tool. I was calling me dude. And I said, well, what is it? And he turns around in my office, and he whips off his T-shirt. And on his back was a tattoo that took up his entire back. And it was a tattoo of Jesus stretched out on the cross with a crown of thorns and tears coming from his eyes. And, and it went from the corner of his shoulder down below his waist. He said, dude, and my work when I'm up on the roof with the other guys and, and I lean over and I'm working, they're, they're seeing Jesus. And it's the best evangelistic tool. I said, where did you get this idea? Man, I just thought of it yesterday. And I thought this would be the greatest idea. I said, do you remember that the New Testament says faith comes by hearing and not by sight? He goes, oh, man, I wish I would have come by and talked to you first. <laughs> Peter, of course, had seen Jesus. He had seen him walking the streets of his hometown. He had seen him changing water into wine. He'd seen him calm the waves and heal the leper and raise Lazarus from the dead. He'd seen flashes of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Peter, of all people, who'd had this immense privilege accorded to so few Christians throughout the centuries, is saying, look carefully at verse 8. He's saying that seeing the Lord Jesus is not the important thing. My friend, you are not, because you have not visually seen the Lord, are not a second-class citizen. Peter is asserting that to his readers that they have not seen Jesus. And look what he says about them. But they love him. And isn't love for Christ the first and greatest commandment, the summary of the first table of the law? And look what he says again in verse 8. And they are trusting in him. They're exercising a knowledgeable belief in his person, work, and promises. This text, underline it, memorize it. This text is a measuring stick to measure all claims to have seen Jesus by this. But then another truth that makes faith genuine. This is what makes faith legit. Genuine faith currently rejoices even in the midst of trials. Look at verse 8. Peter says, though you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible. Certainly trials grieve the believer. But Peter says the believer isn't just a one-note man. Yes, he's grieving. But even through the tears, even through the sadness, even through the pain, he rejoices. Now, this is a constant note of Scripture. All over the Scripture, we are commanded to rejoice in the Lord, and not just on sunny days. 
The psalmist commands us in Psalm 37 to delight ourselves in the Lord. In Psalm 100, to serve the Lord with gladness. We're told in Deuteronomy 12 to rejoice before the Lord our God in all our undertakings. Jesus commands us to rejoice and leap for joy if our names are recorded in heaven. The Apostle Paul gives the repeated imperative in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. The fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit is joy. Paul says he's a worker with us for our joy in 2 Corinthians 1. And so on, on and on. The message is this. Christianity is a life of tremendous abiding joy. And Peter picks up on this theme, look at verse 6 carefully, and tells us the reason for joy and in the process why it's painful joy. He says in verse 6, in this, in what? Well, in your regeneration, in your inheritance, in your being kept, you have joy. The point that Peter's making here is even though trials hurt, you rejoice that you come through intact, stronger, humbled, and shining like gold. How do we apply this word? Well, let me say it again. I said it a moment ago. Trials and troubles are something you must expect. After what our Lord endured, the believer can say, never, I can't believe this is happening to me. My friend, trials and troubles and hardship and pain are to be expected by every believer in every place. Your wealth can't insulate you. Your race can't insulate you. Your education can't insulate you. Trials will come. They're the primary tool in God's hand to test the genuineness of your faith. And I say this to you today because there are many in this room who say, Carl, I'm, I'm not going through any trials. I'm walking on sunshine here. In fact, I've, I've never really had any trials. My friend, write it down. Write it in the front of your Bible. Because what you hear in the light today, remember in the dark. When you're in the midst of a trial, it's hard to hear this truth. So unless you hear and learn and take heart this truth now, the trial to come will swallow you whole. I want to make an application too. We've been talking an awful lot about leadership and we're engaging in lengthened leadership training for men. Soon we'll have the privilege at the end of this year to nominate Elders and deacons, they'll go through training and then we'll elect men. Let me implore you, choose tested men. Choose men who have gone through hardship and have been shaped by their trials. And as a result, men who are proven men, men who are joyful men. There is no greater burden for a congregation than to have ruling over them sour melancholy, depressed men. Choose men who are joyful, who have come out on the other side of trials, refined as gold. And they're not bitter, but they're better. Let me ask you, what did you do in the last trial that the Lord brought to you? Did you even recognize that it came from the sovereign hand of God? Did you rejoice that God was maturing you? If not, let me encourage you to repent. Go in your closet and cry out to God, Lord, have mercy upon me for my blindness and my complaining. 
And what about your joy, even in the midst of trial? Do you pray, oh God, I know that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. And so by your indwelling Holy Spirit, in this trial, in this trial that I'm going through today, purge me of all bitterness and replace that with joy. By giving us this exhortation, Peter is urging us to imitate Jesus. Our Lord endured the trials of his earthly life with perfect joy and patience. He joyfully and patiently endured the humiliation of being born of a woman born under the law. He joyfully and patiently endured the persecutions of men. He joyfully and patiently endured these trials because he understood the eternal ramifications and rewards of his suffering. He knew that a bountiful harvest was coming. And because of this eternal perspective, Jesus was able for the joy set before him to endure the greatest trial of all, the agony of the cross, scorning its shame. And after enduring this trial, Jesus received his reward as he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When you're in the throes of your trials, you can be encouraged because you in that moment are being conformed to the image of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to have our faith in Christ proven to be genuine. And so as we go through tests and trials, we ask that you would use them to burn away all the dross and the impurities. We ask that you would bring us forth joyfully shining as refined gold, demonstrating the genuineness of saving faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.